The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world. This is our chance to reflect upon the major things happening in our world through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. Our Catholic social teaching is basically what is distilled after 2,000 years of Christians reflecting upon what it means to live in the world. And so when we talk about our social teaching, what we basically say is from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the human person is both sacred and social. We believe that the human person is made in the image and likeness of God, and God's image and likeness is within the human person, is basically a constitutive element of what it means to be human, or less fancy word, it's part of, it's essential to what it means to be human, that we made in God's image and likeness. The book of Genesis says it immediately, but it doesn't stop there because that same book of Genesis in the same chapter says, but it's not good for the single human being to be alone. It's that person needs to be in relationship with another human being. And not just with any old thing, because there was a lot of things that were created in the book of Genesis, but as the Bible says, but none of them would seem to be the right pairing for the first human person. It was only to use the language of Genesis with the creation of Eve, that Adam is complete and Eve is complete, and you have one, which it says, that is equal to the other. And so basically, when we talk about our social teaching, we realize that the human person isn't alone in the world, but the human person is in the world with other human beings equal and complementary a partner, whatever other words we want to use. And quite frankly, it maybe was a little bit simpler when we look at the first book of Genesis, because you had to figure out how Adam and Eve got along and how they got along with God. Well, now we got a few billion, actually, I think close to 7 billion, quote unquote, Adam and Eves who are running around the world. And we got to figure out how we all get along together. What our social teaching does is say, okay, here are some of the principles that we think are part of our Christian tradition that guide us in how we should get along in the world. And what we say is fundamental, the human person. We can't trample over each individual person because that person is made in the image and likeness of God, holy, social. And so that's one of the first points. The human person is critically, critically important. But we also say there's more to it. We say that basically people should participate in the world around us, in their society. They should make a contribution. When it gets very practical, they should vote so that they can have a say about the policies that are going to inform the way that we organize our society. We also basically say that another constitutive element of the human person is work. People have to work and people should work. And that's part of what it means to be human. And therefore, that work should be decent. It should be dignified. People's rights to work should be respected. And we should make sure that that happens. We also say that the poor have a special call on our resources because everybody's rights should be respected. And it is most often 
that those who have less economic resources, their rights have a tendency to get disrespected more than people who have more economic resources. And therefore, from our values, our social perspective, we have to have a priority in making sure the poor don't get left out. We say family is important. Family is important because that's the core unit of society. That's the core social relationships that people have. We also then say that, um, <clears throat> that how we get along with other nations, solidarity across borders, across oceans, across continents, is also one of the values that we have. Well, there's nothing wrong with being loyal to one's own country, and that's part of civic participation. But loyalty to one's own country needs to include solidarity with other countries throughout the world. And then finally, in the broadest of all worlds, we have to look at the world that we live in, the environment, creation. And we have to make sure that we don't abuse creation because creation is the world in which everybody lives in and the resources of the creation need to be appropriately stewarded, protected, and passed on in a good way to the next generation. So those are some of the social values that we have as part of our Christian beliefs. Now, I did that uh, with a little bit of fear and trepidation because Tom knows this much better than <laughs> I do. And I'm sure he's going to tell me what I left out or what I kind of misstated. Tom, what I leave out? Nothing, Monsignor. You did. I, I was going to say when you were finished, I would say you get an A plus. You go you go to the head of the class. You did a great job, Monsignor. That was perfect. <laughs> All right. I'm glad I did so let's go now to our first guest, Debbie Walsh who is the director for the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. Debbie Walsh, thank you for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. We are really, really happy that you are joining us on this President's Day weekend. So I am really, really delighted. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for focusing on this topic, which often gets forgotten. So let me let me ask uh, you, because I can see you on Zoom, you can see me, but our listeners are only hearing your voice. So give them a little sense. How did you wind up doing what you're doing? How did you wind up at Rutgers University directing uh, this center? Well, I grew up in New York City, and I grew up in- Hey, we like that. Yay, New York. Yes. Um, and uh, I grew up in a political family uh, that cared a lot about issues of social justice and peace issues. Um, my mother was absolutely a feminist. Um, and so I was sort of raised with this idea. And I always knew I wanted to do something about women's rights. But I also loved and was fascinated by politics. And I went to SUNY Binghamton for my undergraduate degree in political science. And then I went to Rutgers for a master's in public policy um, and political science. And then I went out to Iowa for a little bit to work for a woman who ran for Congress out there um, in 1980 and she lost. Uh, but uh, I learned an enormous amount. That was sort of my year abroad, having grown up in New York, going to Iowa was like, uh, Definitely a different culture, um, but but quite wonderful. And I, I loved the Iowans that I met. And I came back to the center um, to start working on a project um, with women state legislators. We were at the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers, which is part of the Eagleton Institute. Um, they uh, were doing some work with women legislators around a new sort of phenomenon called women's legislative caucuses, where women were working together across party lines uh, to try to affect change, trying to figure out what were the issues they could agree on, um, whether they were Democrats or Republicans. In those days, there were only a couple that they couldn't agree on. Now, I think uh, the world has gotten a little more polarized 
And I think those kinds of caucuses are hard to come by. Uh, but I started working at the center in 1981. Um, I've been there ever since. Um, uh, I, it's a wonderful place where the job changes all the time. We're doing important and interesting research um, on women's participation, asking important questions about, about whether how women get into office, uh, about the impact that they make. Um, but I've also gotten to do things like work on a documentary film about women in politics that aired on Frontline on, on PBS. And we develop education programs to engage college women in office, in the ideas of being engaged in politics and also training women in a nonpartisan way to run for office. So it's all kinds of work and it's always interesting and it's kept me there for over 40 years. Well, I'm so glad you're doing the work. It's important work. Thank you for your dedication to to the to your work. Let me let me ask you a, a tremendously unfair question. Okay, so let me begin with. Oh, the good. Unfair. I'm glad we're going to start off with an unfair question. Yeah. Why would you recommend anybody <laughs> give up their life to get elected to elected yeah. office? I mean, and do we have to just point out what happened this past week? Why, yeah. why don't they get a good job as opposed to wasting their lives? Yeah, you know. Now, I, I recognize it's an unfair I, question. I will <laughs> say that I think it is actually a fair question because it comes up more and more. Um, and it always has been a sacrifice to hold public office. You give up a lot. You give up a lot of your personal life. Uh, oftentimes, many, many jobs that are um many elected positions aren't even full-time. So you have to have a full-time job plus the job of being a state legislator or a council person or a county official. Um, but it has gotten worse now. It's gotten harder. Um, and the the political atmosphere, the, the partisan rancor, the just, you know, trying to do everything you can to, to beat the other side as opposed to actually winning for the people that elect you, uh, is sort of off the charts now. But I would say that here's the deal. This is the system that that makes the decisions, that prioritizes um, the dollars that are spent by government, that uh, does the work that paves our roads and pays for our schools and makes sure you know, the, the garbage gets picked up and also looks at foreign policy and how the world is going to function and climate change, all of these things, government plays a huge role. And if we just cede it over to the, the powers that seem to be running things now, we kind of give up. And so we need good people. We need good women and good men to run for office and to serve. Um, and hopefully to put some of that partisan politics aside and figure out ways to compromise. And I will tell you that our research shows that women are more likely um, to do that kind of working across the aisle. And that happens because when we ask men and women who serve in state legislatures, why did you run in the first place? The men tell us they ran because they are interested in a career in politics and sort of the power of it. And the women tell us it's because they want to fix a problem. And, you know, we think we our shorthand on that is men run to be somebody and women run to do something. And if you have government with more people who want to do something, you're more likely to figure out ways to work across the aisle, because the reality is, you know, this you you've been engaged in in this world for a long time yourself. Uh, you know, the only way things get done is when people feel they can compromise and nobody feels they get everything they want, but you you at least move forward. So that's, I guess, what I would say. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I would I would point out, I would, no, I would not point out, I would share my perspective that the closer, well, let me phrase it this way. Um, Currently, you get a lot more ability to get things done in a municipal level than you do on a state level, and you get the opportunity to get more done on a state level than you do at a federal level. So to pardon me for saying this, 
if the fish stinks from the head down, some of the stink hasn't gotten all the way down yet. So it's, I think it's, you're I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the problems is what people think about when they think about politics and government is they only think about Congress and they see absolutely nothing getting done. But the reality is, is that in our state legislatures all around this country, yeah. work is being done. Policy is being legislation is passed and things are moving. And so you can you can accomplish some things in this at the state level and at the municipal level. Yeah. So we're speaking with Debbie Walsh, who's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagle in, e Eagleton Institute at Rutgers University. Okay, let's kind of make me smarter now, okay? Because it is we're 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 coming up on President's Day weekend. So tell me. Tell me about some of the more interesting women who've run for president of the United States. I'm so glad that you're doing this topic because the reality is, um, you know, this isn't taught in schools um, and we don't see um, the stories of the women who have come before who have run for president. Now we're all focus because there is a woman, Nikki Haley, who is running, but there have been many women before. We've seen about 30 women who have run for president of the United States. That's not including a lot of the very smaller third party candidates who might have been running in one or two states. But you can go all the way back to 1872 when Victoria Woodhull uh, ran for president of the United States, so, the very first. So I'm going to I'm going to confess. OK. Here's my confession. I bet you if there are 30 women who've run for president, I probably wouldn't recognize more than four or five of the names. So I think that's, and you would not be and you would not be alone in that. And I should I should clarify, it's not 30 women. It's actually 30 times because a couple of these women uh, have run twice. But they, still we would say they're 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 the. Harold Statton's of the other gender. <laughs> yeah, although although I, I think we only have, they've only done it twice, so we're okay. not quite at that level, but okay. yeah. So you have someone like Victoria Woodhull. She runs on the Equal Rights Party. She is the first woman to own a Wall Street investment firm. Oh. Um, she runs in 1872. And then Belva Lockwood, um, who ran in 1884 and 1888, I'm also under the Equal Rights Party. Um, she is a fascinating woman who, um, in 1879, she drafted the law that was passed by Congress, which actually allowed women to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court. And she then went on to be the first woman lawyer to practice before the Supreme Court. And in um, I, I was lucky enough to be in some small meetings with Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was on the court and she reveres Belva Lockwood and she okay. brings out a picture, she would bring out a picture of her and tell our students all about Belva Lockwood. Mm. Um, and then when you fast forward up to 1964, uh, this is probably a name you certainly know, Margaret Joey Chisholm. No, but before, before, okay. Margaret Chase Smith. Oh, I do. The first woman to have her name placed in nomination for president by a major Maine, party on Maine. the Republican side. Yeah. And she is uh, she is an extraordinary woman who came into Congress um, when her husband died and she filled that vacancy. She served in the U.S. House for four terms and then she went on to run for the Senate. She had an extraordinary political career in her own right. Um, and she was she got 27 first ballot votes wow. um, at the Republican convention. And next, in 1972, we get to our friend from New York, uh, okay. Shirley, Shirley Chisholm, who right. was the first um, black woman to seek a major party's nomination for the yep. US president and the first black woman elected to Congress. Um, she ran in 1972. She ran a very serious campaign, ran in primaries across the country. And I, again, was very lucky enough to have spent some time with her. And she knew she wasn't winning the presidency, but 
she believed, and I think she was right, that she, by being in the race, forced certain conversations, right? So it's not always about winning. Um, How many delegates did she wind up with? Do you know? I think she ended up with a hundred and almost 152 delegate votes at the convention. Um, And then there are a number of others, but I want to kind of move ahead um, to Elizabeth Dole in 2000, uh, Carol Mosley Braun, U.S. Senator from Illinois, who ran in 2004. Um, We remember Michelle Bachman in 2012. And then some some third party candidates, but candidates who received federal matching funds, who we know their names well, Jill Stein, who ran twice. And then, of course, Hillary Rodham Clinton, who ran twice in 08 and 16 and was the very first woman um, to win a major party nomination for the presidency. And then in 2016, we had um, Carly Fiorina on the Republican side. But I think of 2020 as being a huge breakthrough year in that we saw six women on the Democratic primary stage. We have never seen that before. Um, and it really gave Americans who were paying attention. Right. So so let me let me do this, uh, Debbie Walsh. Um, so there were six people on the stage. I'm willing to bet I can't name many of them. I can you name- wanna try? Uh, You want to try? You want to try? Okay, I get Hillary. No. Uh, no, she wasn't? Not, not in 2020. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. Uh, I'm I'm at a loss. I can't Okay, think- so you want me to give you you want me to go through them? Yeah, please. So you had Tulsi Gabbard. All right. Kirsten Gillibrand. Okay. Kamala Harris. Right. Elizabeth Warren. Right. Amy Klobuchar. Right. And Marianne Williamson. Right. Now, Marianne Williamson is running again this year, right? Except she just dropped out of the race. Okay. Hey, Tom, we had her as a guest on our show, didn't we? Yes, Monsieur. I think we did, like, uh, oh, a good number of years ago, but we did. We did. Yeah, we had her on. Remember that. We had her on just that. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. But what was so great about seeing these women is it let Americans who were paying attention and watching the idea that women were not monolithic, even within one party, because you had first diversity of race and ethnicity, but you also had diversity of ideology. You had very progressive women like Elizabeth Warren. You had more conservative or moderate women like Amy Klobuchar. So there was a range and it kind of took off the table. Well, you know, I would vote for a woman, just not that woman. Well, now you had six to choose from. Right, right. So let me let me ask you your own assessment. I mean, it's your opinion, but you've been around this game for a while. Um, so how much, again, a question which doesn't have a simple answer, how much of Hillary's Clinton's defeat um, in 2016 do you attribute to her being a woman and how much to her running an awful campaign that wrote off the middle of the country? I know that's an unfair question, but like, I'm intrigued by it. I think there's a lot that you can say about the kind of campaign that was run and I'll I'll leave that to others, but the piece that is gendered, I think is absolutely real. Um, You know, one of the things that we know about when women run for office, and particularly these high level positions, is that there is this constant question of their both credibility, their competence, their experience, but overlaid with that, this notion of likability. And I think that she is an example of someone who had to walk this tightrope where you want to be seen as equipped, competent, strong enough, tough enough. But at the same time, when you're a woman, if you're perceived of as strong enough and tough enough, and you know a lot, and you have the credentials and the competency, that kind of makes you less likable. And it and it is a standard that I think the men who run for office 
don't necessarily have to meet. And one of the things that I was always struck by is in the exit polls in 2016, people who said that she was better equipped to be president than Donald Trump and had the temperament, the better temperament to be president, still voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So even when a woman comes up ahead on what you would think are important qualities, it still does not, the votes still don't go to her. I, I also think, look, the reality is she has been around for a long time and people have very strong feelings right. about her, whether right. they are justified or not. It doesn't matter. It's how they feel. And so right. she came into it, I think, with some baggage, although she was an extraordinarily qualified candidate and, you know, may well have been the most qualified person to run for president in a very, very long time. Well, you know, let me let me thank you. I think for that that analysis, which which I would say. And let me offer two things. One is, without a doubt, I think you're right. She was around for a long time, so therefore, she had more than a handful of haters because right. they were. She was around for a long time. And the second thing, my reading of, you know, a a, a broad swath of the American electorate. They didn't want experience. They wanted to break what they thought was a bad system. And so every time experience comes up saying, well, this is what experience has gotten us. We don't want experience. We want something who's going to do it entirely different, whether it's right or wrong. I think that was, was what was going on. The other thing which I will say, and I say this as a constituent from New York, is... She was Senator Clinton was a very, very hardworking, good New York senator and and not unlikable in retail politics. Um, and I agree but, with you. But but that was not the narrative. And that was also not the way her campaign was run. And so. Uh, it, it was a, a confluence of things, I think, um, you know, occurred th there. So, listen. I agree with you, but I also think it's important to put her into a context of these other women who have run. Right. And I think a lot of them have come up against the, some of the same things, which is this idea of trying to break through that the fact that the presidency is probably the most gendered a position you can imagine, right? It is so equated with men, male masculinity, and all the traits that go along, the stereotypical traits of masculinity. And so the women who are running all have to somehow juggle that um, with this idea of of their own the the fact that they are in fact women and all of all that goes with that and those stereotypical uh traits that are assumed and they also run this this risk when you're smart and you're a woman and you have ideas they call you a schoolmarm i mean you remember when elizabeth warren was running and she had a plan for everything right i have a plan for that i have a plan for that and the reality was what people heard was she's schoolmarmish because she's telling you she's telling you her ideas she's telling you what to do and that's a problem well you know again i think those are good points i will just say that i was equally dismayed that bernie sanders always talked down to me as did elizabeth warren so i mean bernie sanders was the most condescending well, think about that with Bernie Sanders. So yeah. I've often thought about him, you know, when you yeah. think about a double standard, I cannot imagine a woman who could run for president and be as popular as he was, right. who wagged his finger at you so much, right. who yelled at you, basically, right. and who looked so disheveled. Oh, but come on. You couldn't pull you, that you, off no, no, you, ad woman. you admitted that you grew up in New York. There are thousands of Bernie Sanders. But when... can they? But if a woman presented that way, she could. There is no way. There is no traction that she would get. But 
Mm. People, you know, and a lot of young people, I work on a college campus, right? A lot of young people were enamored with him, you oh, know? Yeah. yeah. And he, because, because in that election, he communicated something different, not the old way of right. doing business. Right. And what, what Hillary communicated was, listen, I know this business. You're going to elect me. There's no learning curve. I know how to make this system work. And what everybody said, no, we don't want the system to work. We want a new system. Bernie Sanders says the old way doesn't work. I'm a socialist and we're going to do it different. So That's anyway, true. But she was found herself running in a moment when somehow experience didn't matter. Like you'd, you'd love to have a doctor who had never done this operation before. Exactly. Well, and, and not only, I would say even more negative when experience was a liability. Yeah. It was, it was there. Listen, Debbie Walsh, thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for making me smarter as we approach <laughs> President's Day weekend. Debbie well, I enjoyed Walsh. it enormously. Thank right. you. The director of the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just, and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic values. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. As we approach the weekend of President's Day, we also are aware that um, the world of getting things done is not merely presidential, but there is a lot going on on the state level and the local level. And so one of the things that we want to focus on is what's going on on the local level. In New York State, we're from New York State, but there are things like this going on in other parts of the country. So we're going to focus on the New York State Association of Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian legislatures. And I'm delighted that we're going to have the opportunity to speak with the executive director of that organization, who is Charlene Gale. And this association meets every year uh, in Albany around this time of the year. And we're going to learn from her what are some of the things that they um, that they focus on, some of the things that are important to them, a little bit of the history of the group, and where she sees the group uh, going. So I'm delighted that we're going to have Charlene Gale, the executive director of the New York State Association of Black, Puerto Rican, and Hispanic Legislatures on Just Love. Charlene Gale, welcome to uh, welcome to Just Love today. Hi, good morning, good afternoon. How are you today? Well, delighted to see you, and I'm glad that we ran into each other up in Albany just a few days ago. Yes, yes, in the halls of justice. Always a pleasure and an honor and a spiritual well-being to see you, sir. Well, thank you so much. So um, would you just kind of give our listeners a little bit of your own personal history and how you wound up now as the executive director of the New York State Association of Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian legislatures. Sure, sure. So I have the honor of being the executive director of this phenomenal organization. A little bit of my history, um, my family, uh, real estate, and you know, my father, um, Leonard Gill, God bless him, you know, had always been friends with a lot of community leaders within our neighborhood of where I grew up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And, you know, I became friends with their leaders' uh, children. And now those leaders who moved on along with myself and their children are now in the political arena. 
And that's how, you know, I became active in politics. And now I'm the executive director. We are, you know, from our parents' uh, legacy. So let me so let me ask you a personal question, Charlene. You miss real estate? I love real estate. Okay. <laughs> love still, it. Love it. You're still doing some of it or you're full-time doing the executive director thing? I'm full-time doing the executive director, but my family is still in the business. Ah, great. Commercial or residential? Residential, residential, and they specialize in affordable housing. You oh. know, these astronomical rents going up. Um, our family believe in the affordability of housing. Housing should not be just a lottery. It should be a right. Hey, Charlene, you speak in my language because at Catholic Charities, we're doing a fair amount of housing development and all of it is affordable housing and affordable, um, pardon me, uh, Charlene, affordable, not for millionaires, but affordable <laughs> for working folks. You know, when they say affordable, affordable, if you're making $500,000 a year, you got a lot more options than if you're making $75,000 a year. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we, we have seen the housing, you know, become one of major crisis for our urban communities. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, when I was up in Albany earlier this week, one of the things we were talking about is that we kind of think that, you know, no New Yorker should be forced into poverty simply because they're paying rent. That right. somehow we should say things like, and we were talking about this, that, all right, people got to pay rent, but maybe they shouldn't pay more than 33% of their income on rent if they're of a lower income. Maybe we could figure out how we kind of cap the amount that people of lower income have to pay on rent. So uh, I'm with you on the affordability stuff. Yes, yes. And also not only affordable rental, but affordable home ownership, right? Yep. Because home ownership is the legacy of where you could start building your wealth. But yep. don't get me start talking about real estate. I'll be <laughs> here all day long. Hey, Charlene, I already got you talking about real estate. So <laughs> uh, anyway, so listen, tell me about this great organization and, and maybe talk to me a little bit about the history because I'm old enough to remember that I think we've added a few groups to the name of the organization. I don't know. Yes. So yes. tell us a little bit about the history of the organization and where you are now. Sure. So your memory serves you well. It used to be called the New York State Association of Black and Puerto Rican Legislators. Um, we did recently, under the guidance of Chairwoman Walker, you know, we want to be more inclusive and rep to uh, represent our true history of the body. So now it's the New York State Association of Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian legislators. Woo! Yes, we 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 wanted to make sure everyone is included. Hey, Charlene, I, Charlene, I got a I got a recommendation for you to add a group. Yes, okay? and old white men like me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I would bring that to the board. Okay, you bring it to the okay. board. Okay, uh, I'll bring that resolution to the board and keep you posted. Okay. <laughs> so tell us about the organization now. So the organization is a premier nonprofit and nonpartisan 501c3 organization in New York State dedicated to providing leadership, stewardship, and opportunities to people of color throughout the state of New York. Our purpose is to promote the needs of the common good to educate and enhance and empower the lives of people from Brooklyn to Buffalo. Ooh. Okay, that's uh, good. But you also, you also have a little bit of focus on making young people successful, don't you? Oh, that's our future. Right. The young people are our next elected officials. 
So tell us about that work. Sure, sure. So also under leadership of Chairwoman Walker, we started what's called our Tomorrow's Leaders Initiative. Um, we also, we are still creating a fellowship with our past uh, scholarship honorees. We wanted to create a platform where they collaborate and communicate and talk about what's affecting them as young people. You know, we wanted to give them a comfortable forum for them to freely discuss and also to help enhance whatever needs, whether it's educational, whether it's financial, whether even if it's spiritual and a, a place to, for a platform for them to communicate. That's what we do during the weekend and throughout the year. So again, with the work with youth, um, are, is your experience that, that the youth you're working with, they do they have an interest in public service moving in that direction or is their interest more in the business world or, or some other professions? Well, ironically, some of them don't even understand the public sector, right? right. Not until they come into the halls of justice, you know, they hear about it. And let's be clear, you know, even when we was growing up, elected officials sometimes didn't have that good of a name. But now that our elected officials now, you know, especially in this organization, they lead with their passion and their experience. And that's why it's so important for our members to extend their experience to help encourage our youths to whether to go into politics or to go into the private sector. We just want to let them know more about possibilities of what their future can look like and to let them know they have the power to um, they have the power to create and construct and choreograph their future and we are here to help them enhance it. So can you say for our list we're speaking with um, with Charlene Gale who is the executive um, director of the New York State Association of Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian legislatures. And she is a recovering real estate person <laughs> who still has that in her blood. And we're going to get her back to talk about real estate sometime. But um, Charlene, say a little bit more to our listeners and to me to make us a little bit more aware of the specifics of what the Tomorrow's Leaders Program is about. How does it work? What are its activities? What does it do? Sure. So um, the, next the next generation of leaders is making the wave right now, as you can see it. Um, our Tomorrow's Leaders platform ranges from the age of 15 to 25. Mm -hmm. We are hosting a youth conference at the Egg Theater next week, Saturday at 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. I repeat, from 10 a.m., to 3 p.m. Usually it's about 600 children and students who come to our youth summit. It is free. We offer lunches, snacks, and breakfast. Um, what I'm excited about is the theme of our conference this year is AI Navigating Our Future. And recently before the Senate, the federal and state, there were legislations passed you know, to curb the enthusiasm of children as it relates to social media. And we are going to have a panel of youths to discuss the impact of social media mm. on them. You know, that's what's so good about our youth conference. It's not only just there for kids to watch, but it's there for them to engage and collaborate. That is great. Is that actually part of the whole the whole conference? Yes, it is. It's be part of the whole conference. That is that is that is wonderful. I mean, as you pointed out, there have been a lot of conversation about uh, AI and the impact on youth in in Washington. I'm glad that it's closer to to home. Let me ask you a question. I mean, your association is a Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, Asian legislator. Does the AI and the social media play out? a little bit differently among those communities? 
Most certainly, you know, based on uh, New York Times and some other articles, it was talked about the logarithm, right? And have the I logarithm of social media. Um, who is inputting this information into the logarithm, right? We have to be aware of the impacts of AI. Now, we don't want to be afraid of it. We want to embrace it and be a part of that uh, decision-making as it relates to the artificial intelligence. And that's what we want to talk to our children about, you know, whether getting them involved through coding, getting them involved and in, to participate in, in that conversation with AI. And that's why it's so important for us to have the theme this year on the impacts of AI and, and navigating our future as people of color. That is great. And you 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 say you probably hoping to have about 600 young people at that summit? Yes, sir. 600. Oh, that well, can 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 I go to it? Can I eavesdrop at it? Who would stop you from coming, sir? Not okay. Her. I'm glad about that. Hey, Charlene Gale, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. And get back to work because I'm looking to a very successful caucus uh, up in Albany. So thanks for the work you're doing and thanks for your organization. Oh, thank you. And pray for me as I prepare for a conference for 5,000 people and 5,000 different spirits. Please, please Ooh. pray for me. I will pray for you and you pray for me. Always, sir. Thank you. Charlene Gale, the executive director of the New York State Association of Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian legislatures. Thank you. Uh, thank you. We're on Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We look at the world through our Catholic values and we try to form our opinions and our judgments saying, what's going to foster those values in the world around us? So we've just begun Lent. Um, now, I always say there are 40 days of Lent, but if you add it all up, it really, depending on how you count, it's 43, 46 days, depending on what you include. I think 43 is a good number. So we've already had a few days of Lent, but... It's okay. The first Sunday of Lent is coming up, so we can really kind of begin now. If you haven't paid too much close attention to it, it's not too late. It's never too late, because remember the story of Jesus calling the workers in the vineyard. Those who came at five o'clock in the afternoon, they got the same stuff as the people in the beginning of the day. Now, the people at the beginning of the day thought they got cheated. Jesus said, wait a minute, I gave you what you said, and I'm being extra generous with these guys. So anyway, what I'm saying is, if you say, well, Lent began, I can't do it. No, 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 no. No, no excuses. We're right at the very beginning of Lent, first Sunday of Lent. So let's get on the Lenten um, train of dealing with what we need to deal with in order to make this a good Lent. And I'm going to say this, you know, pretty much every week. So even if we get into it and you still haven't done much, but let's do it now, because I consider Lent a gift that the church gives to me. It gives me a gift of saying, okay, let's refocus. Let's also change a little bit. And my main um, thrust for Lent is to say, we need to change the rhythm of our lives so that we can allow God in. And if we just do business as usual, we pass opportunities. You got to change things up a little bit in order to kind of let there be things happening. 
And so what I kind of say very simply is that we're about deepening our relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves. And that's why those three practices of Lent, prayer, fasting, charity, almsgiving, are at the center of the Lenten practice because they are what help us to be, um, to, to kind of deepen those relationships. So what I'm going to ask you as listeners to do is I'm going to ask you to just ask yourself, as I'm asking myself, three questions about what I'm going to do different these 40 days of Lent. So with regard to God, the one question, how will I pray more? With myself, what will I do to fast or sacrifice more? And with others, what will I do to be more charitable or to be of more service? So I'm asking myself these questions. I ask you, ask yourselves these questions. This is just love. Just do it. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Our world will be more just and more compassionate. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.